Well, hey, Grace Community Church, this is a little bit different for us. Uh, if you are seeing me right now, it's Sunday morning, and that means I am not seeing you, which makes me sad, but I am grateful for the technology that allows us to be able to record in order that we can still have the ministry of the Word continue, for you to be edified and built up, and for all of us to learn more about God's will for our lives, specifically in regards to the Sacred Garden series and our romance and romantic relationships with sex and sexuality, relationships and marriage, and just how all of those blur, blur together and merge together beautifully in the Song of Solomon. I hope you are safe. I hope you are warm. There's been a ton of snow that's dumped on us recently, and we just felt as a leadership team, we didn't want to put you at risk in coming in through the icy road. So we're going to jump back into the message this morning, and we're going to unpack a little bit more through the Song of Solomon. But I want to ask you a question. Have you ever struggled to build a fire before? Uh, maybe your wood was wet. A few years ago, we had some friends over and we grabbed some wood from what I thought was our very dry stack of wood. And I spent the next 35 minutes trying to start fire and start fire and trying to just get this wet wood warm enough so it would ignite. Now, in the process, they were very gracious. And after wafting all the smoke out of their faces saying, it's okay, we can just hang out. It was a bit of a letdown. Now, here's the thing. Marriage and romance and Sex and sexuality, we often liken a lot of that to fire. Just like it's frustrating not to get a fire going, it can be frustrating if we don't understand how to keep romance built like a warm fire. If you've ever had that experience yourself, maybe you were out camping or again, maybe having a bonfire with friends, keeping a warm fire takes technique, it takes time, it takes practice. You gotta get good at rekindling a fire. If you think about how fires work, they'll consume whatever they're burning and often they'll end up smoldering and then they'll end up creating ashes and they can go cold. It's important to know that love is likened to this and passion is likened to fire because it takes time to tend it, to practice getting good at building a fire, building romance. That's why these two things are linked together. And as we jump back in the Song of Solomon this morning, we're going to be end up we're going to end up seeing how Solomon guides us uh, and God guides us through his word in six different ways that we can build romance and gives us a word of caution on how we can actually kill romance as well. So if you have a Bible or you have an app on a, on a mobile device, I invite you to turn or find Song of Solomon chapter 1. Song of Solomon chapter 1. As you make your way there, I just kind of want to provide a little bit of an overview for us as well. Uh, last week we looked at six different ways of being the man of her dreams, and some of us were challenged as men in living into the kind of character that would provide a romantic environment and romantic relationship, considering insecurities of a woman. We're going to see a response to that this morning, but if you ever wanted to know what God desires for men to look like in their relationship, go ahead and look back at last week's sermon if you want to. You can look on our website and find that very easily. Uh, and if you're ever wanting to know what it looks like to seek a godly man, to know what a godly man should be for you young ladies out there, go ahead and look back at that last week as well. This entire series is really prompted by uh, a lot of counseling. Um, there's been times where we, my wife and I, Andrea, have seen some miscues, miscommunication, and mishaps in early stages of marriages that are really struggling and suffering. And we want to couch all of this sex and sexuality within the broader context of what makes for a healthy marriage and healthy relational interactions. And so what better time than during this cold winter season to jump into a very hot book of the Bible. So if you found your place in Song of Solomon, uh, I'm standing still here today and I'd invite you if you're in your living room, maybe if you're in a car or something, don't stand. But wherever you're at, stand as I read God's word for us this morning. Song of Solomon chapter one, we pick up in verse seven. It reads this, tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels." We will make for you ornaments of gold, studded with silver. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved to me is a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, 
You are beautiful, your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green, the beams of our house are cedar, our rafters are pine. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases." This is God's word. You can take a seat wherever you're at, and I am going to pray for us before we jump into this passage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that you've given it to us as a guide and as a light. Lord, there is darkness surrounding this entire conversation in our culture and in our world. There's confusion, Lord, in regards to our sexuality, in regards to sex, in regards to relationships between men and women. Lord, we have confused and distorted everything. So we thank you for your word that guides us. Father, you and I both know that I sin and that I fall short often of your glory. And yet, Jesus, I thank you that we all come to behold your glory this morning. And so I pray that you would truly exalt yourself among us. Spirit, I pray for your filling this morning that I would be able to preach your word clearly and truthfully in accordance with your word and for the accomplishment of your will, that this entire church body would be built up and that all would see you, Christ, as the one who is truly the lover of our hearts who has come to captivate us, to behold us, and to draw us into your love. Lord, I pray this morning that you would bring comfort, you would bring conviction and clarity, most of all, that you would be exalted among us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, amen. Uh, This morning, uh, our gospel takeaway, or kind of our big idea through this entire passage, what we're going to be seeing is that there are really, truly, six ways to build romance. Six ways to build romance. Kind of like that fire we talked about. How do you build romance in a relationship? And then there's one warning or one caution that tells us of how you will absolutely kill romance. So let's jump right in. Number one, the first way that we see to build romance is through flirtation. Yeah, that's right. You heard me. Flirting in the Bible. It's right here. Look at verse seven. It says that she is still speaking. And again, we pick up where we left off last week. She's being a bit bashful in what she had just previously said. And yet here she says, tell me of whom my soul loves. Where do you pasture your flock? Where do you make it lie down at noon? Uh, should I be like the one who veils herself beside the flock of your companions? In other words, she's saying, hey, where are you going? What are you going to be doing later? And are, are you going to just treat me like all the, other, all the other women around you and in your life? All the other social environments that you find yourself in? Am I just going to be like all of those other gals? Or are you going to let me in on a little secret? Where are you going to be? What are you going to be doing? You see, this language is actually playful. And in the original language, it gives a sense of flirtation. She's inquiring about where his whereabouts are going to be. And in some sense, there's a leading invitation. And what his response is, is not to tell her exactly where he's going to be. Look at verse 8. He says, well, if you don't know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. This idea of grazing, we're going to see throughout this entire book, it really has to do with being intimate. And, and having physical touch and physical time together. And so he's saying where she would say, hey, where are you going? He's saying, I don't know, why don't you find out? You see, there's a playfulness in this relationship that we're watching unfold and kind of blossom and bloom right in front of us. The sacred garden of intimacy within marriage and within relationships, there is a playfulness. And the question I wanna ask is, why does flirting stop oftentimes within marriage? It's almost like you have no problem flirting with a gal and flirting with a guy when you're pursuing or being pursued. It's no problem just to have this flirting kind of playful tone. And then all of a sudden something changes. Now I know it happens in marriage. Marriage, children. I mean, how often do you feel like flirting after a night of cleaning up puke all night or having a stomach bug go through your home? You don't really feel like being all that playful or flirting a lot, right? We understand that and we know that. But again, when we're thinking about building romance and kindling our relationship, 
we oftentimes allow flirting to slide. And I think it's sad because what we see in this relationship right here is that flirtation is not only allowed, it's something that God has put in his word for us to actually follow and pursue. Flirting is good within marriage. Now, I want to challenge some of us maybe who are a little bit well-advanced in our marriages. Maybe you've been married 10, 12, 15, 20, 25, 30 years. Maybe you have children who are growing into adulthood. Maybe they're in their teenage years. And you're a little bit coy. You're a little bit shy about flirting. Here's what I would challenge you with. The Bible isn't. The Bible's not shy about flirting. And the, the challenge I would put before you is, what example are you giving to your children? That somehow the romance just dies. Naturally, it'll wane over time and just die in marriage. I have counseled and spoken to many men, many women, who are in sexless marriages where there's no romance, there's no flirtation. Uh, I remember a young kid in my youth group one time telling me that he was sad and he didn't want to emulate what he had seen in his parents because he never saw them have any type of physical touch. There was no attempt at romance in his mind. And he said, in his mind, and he ended up vocalizing this to me as his youth pastor, I know that I love my parents and I love their marriage and I love their love for the Lord, but I never want my marriage to get to where theirs is at. I want to flirt with my wife. I want to continue to date my wife. That's a challenge for those of us who've been married for a decade or more is to consider what example are we setting before our children? Are we actually flirting? Are we allow them to see that flirtation is not only a good thing, it's actually a godly thing that belongs in a relationship. If you want to have a marriage and a marriage relationship that is filled with passion and fire, you have to kindle that romance. And one of the ways that we provide kindling is through flirtation. Now, I want to caution, I'm not saying that you should gross your kids out by the way that you are so overly affectionate with one another, right? Nobody likes that sappiness, but there should still be, at least for, for young kids, a little bit of cringiness with the way that mom and dad talk to one another at times. This is actually healthy, and it's good for them to see. If we think about how this actually works, what we will tell our children is that if we're not doing that in marriage, that somehow that aspect of a relationship isn't godly and it's not good. But Song of Solomon gives us a perfect example with her desiring to know where he's going and with her, with him, responding in a way that's playful and flirtatious. You see, romance has an aspect of kindling to it. If you want to have a fire in your marriage that's passionate and you want to keep that fire burning, you want more than just smoke. You want there to be love and affection and desire. And it's good and godly for children to see that in a marriage. When we suppress bad desires out of self-control, this is good and it's godly. But when we suppress good and godly impulses, we can give off the wrong impression in our relationship. Here's a couple of encouragements I'd like to give in regards to flirting. Don't suppress flirting. We don't suppress any other good desires we have. If I'm hungry, that's a good desire. And I'll say, man, I'm hungry, right? In marriage, one of the ways that we cue and we signal that is to just talk affectionately, to admire, to flirt. These are ways that God has given us to be able to continue to build that romance and that desire in our relationship. So don't suppress your flirting. Uh, and then more specifically, flirt with only your girlfriend, boyfriend, your fiance, your husband, and your wife focus on flirting with them. Uh, the depth of commitment in a relationship should be directly aligned with the depth of flirting. In other words, if you're flirting with a bunch of different guys or flirting with a bunch of different girls all the time, you're leading them on. This is a committed, devoted relationship between Solomon and the Shulamite. The Shulamite is actually a term that means a woman of Solomon, his wife, his bride. She belongs to him. And in this relational environment, they're drawing one another towards themselves and flirting. And so, guys, I would challenge you not to lead a girl on in how you flirt with them. And, and ladies, don't give men the wrong impression in how you flirt with them. Flirt with those who you are committed to and allow the commitment and the depth of commitment in your relationship to guide the depth of flirtation in your relationship. You should not be saying things to somebody who you cannot fulfill that commitment of. Now, within a marital context, you can fulfill every commitment that you would make. So that's the encouragement I would have. Uh, and then just for the dudes, I want to kind of isolate this out. Um, when you're flirting, use more than just emojis. Use more than just emojis, all right? In our culture, we have so lowered the bar on romance that we've come to the bottom shelf when it comes to pursuit of women. And I don't want you to think that just sliding into some girl's DMs is actually flirting. 
There is a physical, relational environment in which flirtation is not only appropriate, it's called for. So when you narrow down the appropriateness in regards to the level of commitment and level of engagement in how you're flirting with somebody else, remember to not be crass, to not be crude, to appropriately show them that you're flirting with them. This is a challenge to a lot of our kind of swipe right culture in what we see in our day and age. Flirting is like the kindling in a relationship. And again, if you wanna build a fire that is smoking hot, that's not only a good impulse, it's a godly impulse, and there's appropriate channels for that within the context of committed relationships that are pursuing marriage. That's the number one way to build romance in a marriage. Number two, affirmation. Affirmation, look at verses nine through 15. Solomon says, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. So here's what we need to realize. Uh, last week we had talked briefly about the desire that the Shulamite had for affirmation that would come from Solomon. And the way that she seeks for affirmation is not by putting herself down, but by saying, I'm nothing special. Last week, she talked about how her skin was dark. And we said that had nothing to do with race. It had everything to do with culture. Sunburns in those time or having a dark tan from being outside meant you were of a lower class, not to be pursued, not desirable. In our day and age, having a nice tan is actually really desirable. So she was putting herself down or really kind of looking around and saying, I'm not that important. I'm not that special. And we previewed last week in talking about how our words, men, can provide a shelter and a covering over our wives or over our girlfriends and fiancés and those who we are pursuing for marriage. His words speak to her in such a way that it affirms her beauty and builds her up. But we've got to understand exactly how he's doing that and what he's doing in order to understand how we build romance into our relationship. Again, he says, you're like a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Now, here's the deal. Um, if we just read this straight out, right? Here, this is a bad way to try and bring affirmation to a woman's physical beauty. It's like him saying, dang girl, you look like a horse. It's like, you don't wanna say that to a girl. That's terrible, right? What are you like, 10 hands high, you know? Dang girl. It's like, that's not what he's saying. What is he saying? Well, I think if we understand and unpack a little bit of their culture, we'll really glean from it what we can take as a principle in regards to how we build romance in our relationships. So there's a couple ways that this compliment is really profound. First of all, in the ancient Near East, in the culture that this took place, nobody had finer horses than Pharaoh. In fact, what gives credence to Solomon being behind writing this particular aspect of the Song of Solomon is that Solomon had actually married one of Pharaoh's daughters and had actually traded and bartered for the power and the beauty that came with Pharaoh's stallions and his mares. And this is actually really powerful to consider because what 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 Solomon is doing is talking about the quality of his wife's beauty. He's saying, in regards to the beauty of what would be compared to the most beautiful creature and powerful creature, you belong to the highest grade and the highest class. He's saying, you are the highest grade of diamond. You're the highest caliber of any type of metal. You're the highest quality and the finest quality than anyone could ever have. So he's separating her out. Whereas she was wanting to make herself lower by saying, you don't want to pursue me. He's saying, no, not only do I want to pursue you, but you belong in the highest class as far as beauty goes. How powerful would it be then, men, if we actually lead with our words where women would speak to us their insecurities, that we would actually be able to provide covering and shelter over them to be able to affirm their beauty in ways that they know that they are separated in regards to quality and their merit of how God has built them, how God has created them in their beauty. This is a powerful way for us to take this away and not saying, hey girl, you look like a horse, but hey, you are a standout among all the women of the world. You have value that goes beyond any other. That's a powerful statement. He's talking not only about highest quality and beauty, but secondly, he's actually talking about a very interesting aspect of war. You see, in ancient times, whenever a chariot would be riding out into battle, the stallions who were very who were war horses, they were trained to actually take the kings and take the warriors into the heart of the battle in order for them to slay as many people as possible. A countermeasure or a counterattack would be for the, those who were being attacked would be to actually release mares, that is female horses, 
into the battle who were in heat. Why? It was to provide a tactical strategy in order to distract the stallions from going into the heart of battle. They would send these mares out to distract them and to take them off course. So what is Solomon saying? It's twofold. Not only are you the highest quality of beauty, but you're the most sought after among women. You will distract even the most amazing of men in the heat of battle, what they've been trained for and bred for. You're so beautiful that they'll get distracted by your beauty. Now, here's the thing. If you speak to a woman in these ways, you will develop a romantic relationship that will build a fire that is fiery and passionate and pure. But again, its appropriate place is in courtship that's aligned towards marriage. The depth, again, of commitment should allow you to engage the depth of flirtation. Guys, as I mentioned uh, hearing uh, last week, if you're hearing hints from your wife and she's fishing for compliments, first of all, recognize you're not complimenting her enough. If she has to lead you to a place where you're complimenting her beauty, that means she's not getting enough attention. She's not getting enough affirmation. Uh, and second of all, it should give you to a place where you're lavishing verbal, generous, verbal generosity over her in the way that you compliment her beauty. Give her affirming words that bring security to her heart. Where she would have insecurities, allow those securities to actually allow those insecurities to be laid to rest. And when you make her heart secure through affirming words about her beauty, Again, this is that aspect of a sacred garden. You are watering the garden that God has given to you. Solomon also here mentions the adornment of her cheeks. You are lovely with ornaments. Your neck is strung with jewels. He talks about how she dresses, how she dresses to attract him. There's an appropriate place for attire and apparel that, is, that attracts your spouse or attracts someone that you're pursuing. I know that this is a touchy conversation and how modesty is often utilized in order to suppress a lot of these desires in women. But here's what I would want you to know, women. There is an appropriate place to dress in such a way that it attracts your spouse to you, that they would actually have an opportunity to see you in all of your brilliance and all of your glory, brilliantly shining like jewels, like diamonds. This is what Solomon is saying, is that she dresses in such a way that it makes his heart beat and it makes him desire her. This is a book that's filled with passion and desire. And this is a way that we can actually understand from a gal's perspective how dressing up in appropriate ways in appropriate places in ways that actually your husband loves and admires. This is a way that you can also kindle romance in your relationship is in how you present yourself and in how you dress. Um, quickly, in regards to affirmation, it isn't only uh, the bride and the groom who we see affirming one another. It's also others who are jumping in. Again, the choral uh, aspect of this entire song is that there are others who are coming into the relationship and providing affirmation for them. What, is that, what happens here is a little bit different. What do they say? Look at verse 11. They say, we will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. So here's, <laughs> here's a, a challenge and an encouragement. Um, after getting invitations to weddings over and over and over, uh, I know that in my mind and heart, I've been like, oh man, another registry coming my way. But here's the thing I want to encourage you with. It's biblical. It's biblical for us to lavish gifts on those who are getting married. It's biblical for us to lavish gifts on those who have a new relationship and for us to bless them and encourage them. And hey, you're lucky. Why? Because this, this is talking about making ornaments of gold and silver. Nowadays, we just send them an Amazon link. So be generous with when you are approaching somebody's registry and thinking about how your gift actually is affirming not only their love of one another, but ultimately it's affirming the picture of marriage, of God's love for his people. So just think about that. That's a side note in regards to affirmation and how our generosity of relationships and our blessing over them speaks to our affirmation of them. What's another way that we can build our romance in our relationship? Number three, vacation. This one gets a little bit hot, so I'm just going to warn you. Verses 16 and 17. She responds saying, behold, you are beautiful. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. 
our rafters are pine. So this section is rather intriguing. If we just think about it from a second, even though there are aspects where it is a back and forth ver- ver- through 12 verses 12 through 15 and how they affirm one another and talk about how dear they are to one another, this changes the entire scenery. She says that our couch is green. She says that their house is the framing is cedars and the rafters are pine. What is she saying? They're outside. That's what she's saying. That there is a marital enjoyment that's taking place in an outdoor situation. Okay, our couch is green. They're on grass. Our house is cedar. Their rafters are pine. Uh, They're outside doing the deed. That's what's happening in this context, okay? And again, I said it might get a little hot, but I'm just trying to tell you that there is an aspect to our marriage and to marital intimacy that gives freedom to explore and to enjoy different aspects. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, hey, everyone in every marriage needs to invest in a national park pass, okay? That's not what I'm saying. In fact, I think that's probably illegal in most states, all right? So don't hear me saying that. But what I am advocating for, all right, is getting away and spending time in isolated places with your beloved because that will definitely keep the flames burning in your relationship. Even as we heard the affirmation and how they spoke to one another, verses 12 through 15 reiterate how they speak to one another and what he means to her and she means to him. There's verbal affirmation going on, but right here, we actually see vacation take a place in their relationship. For all the couples who are listening, all right, uh, get away. Find a different place of scenery. Uh, Jim Gaffigan, a comedian who I really enjoy listening to, Uh, He says, vacation is just eating where you normally wouldn't, all right? So for married couples, I'd say that eating and sexual intimacy in relationship, okay, they both have appetites. So enjoy time spent away from the hustle and bustle and from normal routines in different places and in different situations, okay? And I'm alluding to all of this, but I just want to make it clear, all right? Go out and enjoy a vacation away right? Find someone to watch your kids. Take time away to enjoy and explore God's creation, different aspects of our state, of our region, of our nation, of our world. Whatever you're able to do within your means, find time away together as a couple. For all the kids who are sitting there listening to this at home next to your parents, what I want you to hear me saying is that when your parents are away, they're bird watching, and that is all. They're just they're just bird watching, sightseeing, okay? Um, but here's a, here's a statistic that I, that I think is helpful to reiterate this exact point of what God gives us context for in this passage. According to a survey of a thousand married Americans, of those who rated their marital satisfaction as excellent, 84% of them traveled together regularly. Think about that. When we travel together regularly, we are experiencing what is being displayed for us in this passage. They're going to a different spot and they're enjoying time together. They're enjoying God's creation together within this different spot. What a beautiful poetic way to talk about enjoying the romance in a relationship and romance in a marriage relationship in a different context than you normally find yourself. When you get into the routine, the everyday, wake up, eat breakfast, make lunch, drink your coffee, do your devos, you go to work, you come back, there's the nighttime routine. When you get into the routine over and over, sometimes you need to actually rekindle that fire. And one way to do that is by getting away and going on vacation. Number four, recognition. Recognition. This differs slightly from affirmation, but look at at verses one and two of, of chapter two with me for a second in order to understand how all this differs. She says to him, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Again, there is an aspect where I think historically there are some who have believed that this was to be interpreted as self-praise. But contrary to that, she isn't giving herself praise. She's actually doing the opposite. Well, how do we know that? Well, in order to understand that, we have to know where the, the Sharon Valley is. First of all, this is translated as rose in many places, but really it wasn't a rose. There wasn't a rose in this, in this place uh, for them to draw from. This was most likely a daffodil or a lily. And in the springtime in the Sharon Valley or in the Sharon Plain, every, every spring it would bloom and blossom 
with lilies and daffodils of every kind, all these wildflowers that would be strewn throughout the valley. So what does this mean? She's not saying, I'm something really special. She's saying, I'm actually very common and very ordinary. When she, what, she, what she is saying is very profound. She's saying, I'm just like every other girl. But what he says in response to this, response to this actually goes once again to show how important it is for our words to be very generous towards the women in our lives, our wives, those who we are seeking to marry, to be engaged to. Words matter deeply. He says, look at verse 2, as a lily among the brambles, so is my love among the women. What she's saying is, I'm just like a grain of rice. Like, there's millions of them. I'm not important. I'm not a standout. What he says is, you're not like a lily among the Sharon Valley. You're like a lily among the thicket of thorns. You stand out as one, as only, as unique. If you think about finding something very important, I think this is where men oftentimes can fall short. Most guys today who haven't disciplined their eyes, our hearts can be filled with a desire to cherish our brides, but that will be absolutely impossible if we have a harem on our hard drive or a harem in our head. I want you to hear me on this. If your wife or your fiance is having to compete with myriads of women, whether it's physical or digital women, you are letting them down and you are failing. You will not be able to truly cherish them as being unique, as being something that stands out among the rest of the litter. What does that mean? It means that you must discipline yourself in such a way that you're able to cherish your bride today or your future bride-to-be, okay? I would often hear from men how they desire to cherish, but I would often wonder in my head, what exactly does that mean to cherish? Most young guys don't know what that means. Think of it like a prized possession, a treasure, a keepsake, something of value that's beyond its monetary worth. When we cherish something, we give it attention, we give it focus, we care for it, and we protect it. So here's a challenge. If you value your hobbies more than your wife, you're not fulfilling her dreams, you're crushing them. You're crushing them. There's a famous scene in an older movie called The Christmas Story where this wife breaks the husband's lamp. And it, it's an accident, but the background is really interesting when we consider this aspect of cherishing. You're unique, you're one. You're not one among many, you are the only. In the background of it is that the husband had actually won a leg lamp. And the lamp was not just any leg, it was designed very suggestively as a woman's leg wearing fish netting. But the scene here is really funny because throughout the movie, the husband is treating the lamp better than his wife and there's a stark contrast to it. And when she accidentally breaks the lamp, he says out loud what he's been feeling and what everyone's been feeling the entire time. He says, you've always been jealous of this lamp. Well, of course because he's always paid more attention to and given more praise to the lamp than his own wife. It's a funny scene and it's ridiculous to laugh at, but what isn't so laughable is that there's many marriages that have leg lamps in them, even if it's not an actual leg lamp. You see, if we are not careful as men with what takes up our attention, our devotion, and our praise, our wives will resent what we love because we don't love them with the attention and admiration and praise that they deserve. Here's a hint. If your wife is coming to resent something that you love, she may actually be a signal in two ways. One, signaling in your heart that you're not giving her enough attention, and number two, as a godly helpmate, a signal in your heart that you aren't giving God the right amount of attention. You see, wives are actually idle radars. They help us to determine what should be in our lives and what should not be in our lives. This is a part of a godly helpmate, helping to make the man all that he should be in Christ. So we should reward that and not punish that. When she is coming to you, she should not be begging you to stop doing something. She should be looking at the activities in your life and finding nothing that competes with her attention or the Lord's attention for your heart. So when we talk about recognition, when he praises her and says, you know what, you are a lily among the brambles. He can say that because the integrity of his life makes those words true. Recognition. Number five, the fifth way that we need to build romance in our relationship is through protection. Look at verse three. 
She says this in response to what he just tells her. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the men. Okay, so what did he just do? He separated her out from the rest of the lilies. He said, no, you aren't just one among many. You are the only one. You are unique and I will cherish you. She does the same thing to him. She likens him not to just any tree of the forest, which is all the other guys. She says, you're an apple tree among young men. What does that mean? Well, that's an affectionate term. Apples are, uh, in this entire book, apples are meant to be a, a, a picture and an image for us of their sensuality and of their sexuality. It's meant to be fun and playful, that she would admire him for being what she desires. There's nourishment, but there's also protection under his shade. If we think about what she had just said beforehand in how that the sun had actually darkened her skin and it was harsh and she doesn't desire to look at him, what does she say? As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among young men. With great delight, I sat in his shadow and his fruit was sweet to my taste. There is a protective aspect to his care and his nurture and his encouragement and his affection for his beloved. That means there is protection and safety for her. She feels sheltered under his branches. This is an image of protection. Guys, the women in our lives should feel safe around us. I'll say that again. The women in our lives should feel safe around us. They should feel protected. They should not have to feel protected from anything other than outside forces within our households. Okay, if they don't, it's not their fault, it's our fault. If you're hearing words and phrases, I don't trust you, I don't feel safe around you. Why do you say those things to me? Why do you treat me that way? Why don't you pursue me? Why don't you talk to me? These aren't just like car alarms going off in the distance. These are tornado sirens that are blaring, trying to get your attention. Your marriage is not headed the right direction. And you as the leader of your household have the only responsibility to pursue your bride in such a way that she feels protected, sheltered. If we come back to kindling romance, like we kindle a fire and build a fire, if we think about how we would actually enjoy the warmth of a fire, we would never want to push that fire out in the kind of weather that we've experienced this weekend. It's counterintuitive. It's counterproductive. And yet somehow when the enemy gets in between our relationships and there's conflicts and dynamics at work within our households, we are more willing to push the fire of romance outside into harsh weather, which is lack of protection. You will never get the kind of affection you're seeking in your marriage if your wife never feels safe and secure. Whether it's physically, emotionally, psychologically, whether it's monetarily or sexually, if there's not safety in your household, you will never receive the kind of affection that God has designed for appropriate and healthy marriages. We think about love and our love life within marriage, we should be challenged by this imagery of protection, right? In our relationships, we think about our words. If you're being harsh and domineering and controlling or overpowering, we should think about our actions, anger, impatience, cold shoulder. All of these may be reactions or actions, but they aren't proper leadership for godly men. They are actually just childish reactions from boys. So the invitation for us is to actually look at the way that she speaks about Solomon. He's an apple tree. Not only do I desire his protection and his shelter, but in talking about an apple tree, she also desires his affection and his presence. We see this actually in the sixth way to build romance, and that's through satisfaction. She likens his love to sweet tasting apples. Now this is metaphoric language, but if we think about the metaphors that have been utilized here, I think it's quite, uh, how would we put it, revealing. The woman is pictured throughout this book as either a vineyard or a garden. And the man is pictured oftentimes here as a tree. Now, without being too graphic here, I think we can understand at least some of the point. Vineyards and gardens, plowed, tilled, plucked, tended to, cared for, nurtured in order to bring type, the type of fruit that would be enjoyable. Trees, hard, and wood. That's all I'm going to say, right? Don't need to go any further than that. 
But the metaphor is powerful for us to understand that the desirableness of man to woman and woman to man is something that God actually created and delights in. It is intended for our pleasure and our delight. And that's exactly what she talks about here. She says that his fruit is sweet to my taste. She desires him. This is a stand-in for love and intimacy within marriage, that it's desirable. Again, you can't have that kind of satisfaction within marriage if there's not a protection within your marriage. If your wife doesn't feel safe in your household, she will never desire to have the sweetfulness of your love. When we think about satisfaction, there are freedoms that are afforded within the, the precious context of marital relationship. And we see that in the language that's reiterated in here. When we consider how the sweetness of his love is only followed by the safety that he provides, we should, men, take it upon ourselves. If our relationship isn't where it needs to be, or where it should be, or where we want it to be, we must look at how we've been acting and how we've been treating our wives and our households and our children. And we must lead in a different way. We have to change. We set the pace. If we are living in such a way where we are leading well, you will enjoy and she will enjoy the sweetness of your marital relationship. What else does she say? Consider the language that she uses in talking about his satisfaction and what she finds in him. She says, he brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. Banners were used in battle to signify where a tribe was, where archers were, infantry was, and they would rally to it. They would look to the banner, they would know where they belonged and they would go there. So if we think about what she's saying about her husband's love, he battled for her and she knew where to rally to. She would rally to his leadership. If your leadership is strong within your marriage, your wife will rally around your love because she knows that her banner, your banner, over her is your love for her. She knows exactly where to find it and exactly where to go. What his love for her tells her is this is where you belong because you will find my character to be filled with words of affirmation and with a lifestyle that is lived to protect you. If we want to have a love that is passionate and filled with fire, we need to listen to the song of Solomon and hear all that it sings to us. She also goes on to say, sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. Again, they are enjoying marital bliss and they are enjoying intimacy within the context that God has blessed it and called it very good. She says, sustain me with raisins. This is a way for us to actually nourish. There's a physical exhaustion that's happening that she needs nourishment for. And in verse six, she says, his left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. Without being too graphic, the word embrace is used uh, very broadly here, but very specifically, it can mean other ways. If we think about the imagery here, she is receiving an embrace. That is an intimate embrace. Let's just leave it there and put it that way. The Bible gives us poetic language to think about how we actually are to relate in marriage. And when we think about marriage, I've been speaking about it in a way that is both here and now for some of us and also future, future tense for others of us. And there is, at the very end of this entire passage, a caution that is given to those who are not married yet and who are looking toward marriage. Verse, chapter 2, verse 7, she says this, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. If we think about spooking a deer or spooking a doe or a fawn out of its place, they run off meaning it wasn't time yet. It wasn't time yet. It wasn't the appropriate time. And what she's speaking about here is a warning that's given as a caution. This is one surefire way to kill romance, not only here and now, but actually onward. I have spoken with many people who have entered into unhealthy relationships in their past, whether it's through assault or through their own doing, a willingness to, to enter into places where God had not ordained or given a green light on. There's a caution that she provides here. She says, do not awaken love. Don't even stir it until it pleases. What is she saying? Don't even enter into this conversation. Don't even enter in to having uh, relationships that grow in depth of affection and intimacy if you are not ready and in a place to get married. 
we have these tulips in front of our house and I love watching them bloom every spring, but what I hate watching is watching them bloom early and then having one of those April snowstorms come in and absolutely kill them immediately. It's sad, but that happens, I guess, here in Michigan <laughs> uh, as we consider this weekend. But here's the thing I want us to consider. When we allow sexuality to be awakened too early by entering into sex outside of the context that God has allowed, casual sex and dating leads to less and less satisfaction over time. One study actually showed that the most satisfied women were middle-aged religious women. Hallelujah! Amen! The same study found that single middle-aged women who were non-religious were also the most satisfied, the least satisfied. As I read the study, I thought, yeah, you don't say. Why? It's because God has actually given us specifically a guidebook for understanding how marriage and marriage relationships work. Last week, I mentioned the chemical oxytocin, and I want to just talk about this really quickly when it comes to awakening love too early. Uh, young ladies, here's something important for you to consider. There was a neuropsychiatrist at University of California, and this is what she says about how oxytocin works within relationships. She says, from an experiment on hugging, all right, just on hugging, we also know that oxytocin is naturally released in the brain after a 20-second hug from a partner, sealing the bond between the huggers and triggering the brain's trust circuit. So here's what a secular professor, okay, who is a neuropsychiatrist, here's what she says. So, ladies, don't let a guy hug you unless you plan to trust him. When we talk about guarding our hearts, when you hear parents talking about guarding your hearts, here's what you have to consider, that when you give yourself over in even what seems benign or small or light, right, in affection, with a long drawn out hug, God has designed your brain to release chemicals that begin to bind you to that person and begin to trust them. That's very important, okay? Here's what she says. Touching, gazing, positive emotional interaction, kissing also releases oxytocin in the female brain. So doing any of those things allows your body to move in such a way that God has wired it to bind and trust to that person. Such contact may just help find the switch on the brain's romantic love circuit. So what she's saying is oxytocin, again, is this chemical that God has designed to be released, but she warns, do not begin even hugging if, you don't, if you're not ready to begin trusting. There's a helpful guideline, right? And it may explain for some of you why you are drawn in to being girl crazy or boy crazy, right? I was always curious when I would watch these junior hires interact and they would, you know, the guy's like this tall and the girl's like this tall and they're like holding hands. And I would watch them just like hug each other after school for a long time. I'm like, what are you doing? Their brains are wired to begin trusting each other. Well, what happens with greater trust, greater and greater trust, right? Just like I talked last week about the emotional current, the undercurrent, right? Eventually, those things through trust will begin to build. Guys, we're not immune to this. We are actually, we have another chemical called vasopressin. It functions very similarly to oxytocin in women. It's a chemical that's released, again, to create bonding in, in a very similar fashion. So we're not immune from this. What the same research found was that within men who move from partner to partner, this chemical, while still released, is less effective at bonding, which means for men, they, the, the, the researcher likened it to tape that was being used over and over and over and to the point where it was losing its stickiness. Okay, so this is a caution against four young men. Okay, why? Because men who get in a pattern of, of interacting with young women over and over and over and over, what we learn is that those kinds of men end up becoming those who are calloused, who become womanizers. And they become callous not only to women, but also to children as well. The same research showed that vasopressin within men can make them callous over time if they are not bonded to the same partner over and over. So young men, don't fool yourself into thinking your premarital screen time or Netflix and chill moments are somehow meaningless or irrelevant and they won't affect you long term in the way that you treat your future spouse 
or your future children. It will. It will make you more callous, not more empathetic or more compassionate. They are directly linked. So the more promiscuous you are as a young man, the more callous you will eventually become. This is a warning that should be noted by any young men who are listening to this. If your heart's desire is to honor God and honor women, the surefire way to prevent that is by being more promiscuous and by engaging in online pornography intake. That's the caution. Do not awaken love. God has wired our bodies, hardwired us for interaction, male to female interaction. That's what he's built us for. But if you awaken that too early, you will douse the fire of romance before you ever rightly kindle and build a fire of passion within your marriage. I want to provide just a Christ connection for us before I close in prayer. Well, most of the imagery that we talked through today was a little bit hot. Uh, here's what I want to remind us. It's, it is directly to, it's inappropriate to talk about directly, right, with a Christ in our relationship. When, it, when, it, when we're talking about this level of detail in a relationship, it's inappropriate for us to think about Jesus and ourselves in that way. That's inappropriate, like definitely inappropriate. But every relationship, right, regardless of those details that we're called together to really work through and process through, when we elevate it up, we can actually look at how this actually talks about the principles and the timeless truths of how relational interactions have happened throughout history, and it points, all of it points, to Christ and his affection and his love for his church. So when we read that the woman is saying of her husband, the wife is saying of her husband, his banner over me is love, we also can apply that to our relationship with Christ. That, that, that Jesus actually loves us and he has pursued us. He has won the heart of his bride and he has given his life for her. His character and his protection are beyond all measure. He has an immeasurable love for those who are called according to his good purposes. Jesus can also restore and forgive anything that's ever happened in our lives. Whether you have been transgressed against or you have been the one who has transgressed. If your brokenness and sexuality leads you to a place where you don't think that Jesus would ever forgive you, I, I am excited to tell you this morning, you're wrong. Jesus has come in order to forgive those who have sinned and have fallen short. That's the point of the gospel, is that Jesus has come in order to take on the sin and the brokenness, your mishandling, your dousing of the fires that were meant for another time in another place with a specific person, God has actually given you his son, Jesus, to forgive you of your sin and to actually restore to you what you have broken in your, in your brokenness and in your sexual relationships. Jesus forgives, Jesus restores. And I think for all of us, that is a hope-filled future that we can actually have a second chance and a new beginning at building a fire of romance within our relationship.